You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A federal court of appeals ruling has overturned a lower court decision brought by a group of Utah residents who were born in American Samoa. They sought birthright citizenship because they were born on the island that is U.S. territory. That includes the right to vote for president and run for office outside of Samoa. But that citizenship could upend the cultural land system in place in Samoa. We talked to Lininui Cruze, author of the book The Pacific Insular Case of American Samoa, and whose work was cited in the Tenth Circuit Court ruling. It's great news for American Samoans that live in American Samoa, and it's also great news for the principle of Republican democracy, which is self-determination. This particular lawsuit came about because in November 2018, three Utah residents filed in district court in the state of Utah, which is a federal court, and they argued that as American Samoans, born in American Samoa, but residents of Utah, they have been discriminated against because they did not receive birthright citizenship being born in American Samoa, so they sued in federal court. And in the district court in Utah, Judge Waddups had declared and made a decision that he agreed with their argument. He believed that they should have birthright citizenship because American Samoa is an American territory. And so the case that came yesterday was the Court of Appeals. So the American Samoan government, as well as the intervener, the delegate to Congress, she also was intervener to the suit, they appealed. And the appeal decision stated and reversed the district court's decision awarding birthright citizenship to three Utah residents that are already eligible for naturalization. And I think that part of the argument is often not said. So American Samoans, technically in statute, they are described as non-citizen nationals. For any American Samoan that wishes to naturalize and receive U.S. citizenship, every American Samoan may do so, and they may do it by living three months in a continental state, taking an exam, as well as the English proficiency test, and pay a $700 fee. I think that's often missing. And with this reversal, I mean, this is is important because there is self-determination that's worked into this. Yes, and they had focused on the fact that there is self-determination, but Really, they also focused on the fact that historically, over the 100 years, different court cases under what's called the insular cases at our Supreme Court has said the primary body to determine if statutory citizenship is going to be extended to a territory has always been the U.S. Congress. And so what these lawsuits are trying to do is negate Congress and this decision called it out, they're trying to create a judicial constitutional fiat in the court system, whereby they negate Congress statutorily providing them with citizenship, and they're trying to sue in federal courts. And what a lot of people aren't saying is, well, why would they do that? There is this fear by the existing territories that are already U.S. citizens that had plebiscite votes in their constituencies in the islands. Residents of their islands had voted through plebiscite to want to be U.S. citizens. Then they went through their Congress delegate, and their Congress delegate then lobbied for this in the U.S. Congress. What they're so fearful of is that if the U.S. Congress can award an entitled statutory citizenship, They're fearful that Congress then can turn around and, I suppose, take it away. Mm. So what they want to do is create a more secured relationship in the judiciary branch of citizenship. But they're doing it by what I call, and I've been talking about this, interterritorial hegemony. They want to crush the next self-determination for American Samoans and 
declare citizenship upon people that they themselves have not declared themselves that they want it. We do hear a lot about Samoa and the cultural system that we've got in place there and land ownership. And that's a real key thing. It is a key thing. For me, I think that's what is happening here with these cases. Also, is you are seeing that there is this tension now, a tension between the question of constitutional citizenship and the cultural preservation, which I think here in Hawaii is not lost to anyone, given in 2000 we had Rice versus Cayetano and what that case had done in what I'm speaking about now for tension. And so quite simply what it is, in American Samoa, under the revised American Samoan Constitution, only American Samoans with 50% American Samoan bloodlines may own lands. And that's enabled to happen because they are a territory. And what that means is as a territory, you are automatically becoming an unincorporated territory, meaning Congress has not declared that you are on a pathway to statehood. So when you are an unincorporated territory, the Constitution does not fully apply, and it's basically a case-by-case basis. If you were an unincorporated territory like Guam, Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and the Northern Mariana Islands, Congress has created a statute through an organic act where you are now incorporated and your citizenry now are citizens. That has not happened in American Samoa. In American Samoa, we are able to protect customary lands, which are Samoan-owned lands administered over by the family. And we are able to do that because we do not have the full constitution that applies in the territory. There's this political notion that Americans are only American through their citizenship. And for American Samoa, under their deeds of session, two of them in 1900 and 1904, they've been American since they were seated. They have permanent allegiance to American Samoa. But you can't pick and choose which Republican principles you want to apply to our people under the country. They fully proposed and embraced self-determination, there are benefits to not being citizens in a territory in the Pacific, thousands of miles from the west coast of California. And looking at, and since we are here in Hawaii, one only needs to look at Hawaii's experiment, what happens when everyone becomes citizens. Then everyone sues to want to have the same entitlements and benefits as Kanaka Maoli. We see what has happened with the cultural tensions on what citizenship does to its residency. And American Samoans don't want that. And so the options then for the folks that may try and get this heard again? There's no question about it. They're going to appeal. And in the case before this case, there was another case. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court denied to hear the case. Mm -hmm. And so what is happening here is there are other territorial citizens that are unhappy with their relationship and unhappy with the statutory citizenship. They are lobbying and they are creating special interest groups to intervene into this case for American Samoans and American Samoa. And so there's a lot of self-interested people and there's a lot of self-interested groups that want this, but not for American Samoans. (laughs) And I guarantee you they're going to appeal this again and they're going to try to have the Supreme Court made up of conservative judges from particular political interests that they hope will find favor in their arguments. I just keep wondering... If citizenship is already available to all of these people that are paying tens of thousands of dollars to attorneys and lobbyist groups that are entering this conversation that all live, by the way, in Washington, D.C., why don't they just get naturalized and become U.S. citizens? And it's surprising to me, the three Utah residents, they've been living in Utah for more than 20 years. Why don't you just naturalize and become citizens? 
or why don't you go back to American Samoa and see the residents in American Samoa if they want U.S. citizenship? It seems that the three, and if you look at all the friend of the court briefs, most of the people involved in this lawsuit are not American Samoans and have never lived in American Samoa. These are all constitutional lobbyist groups in Washington, D.C., with particular self-interest. And I believe they are the ones that are really pushing this forward, constitutional, legal minds that perceive culture as a non-factor and irrelevant to this quest for U.S. citizenship. Mm -hmm. To their minds, U.S. citizenship is and has always been the goal. And that is and has not ever been the goal for American Samoans. If you read through their deeds of session, it has always been to protect the culture, their yeah. customary lands, and their chiefly system. That was author Lene Nui Cruze talking about this week's Court of Appeals ruling that affects American Samoa. Cruze is an associate professor at Brigham Young University and also teaches at the University of Hawaii West Oahu campus. Support for HPR comes from Malama Ola Health Services on Oahu, offering individualized hospice and palliative care to patients in their family residence, nursing home, or other care setting. Learn more at malamaolacares.com. Mr. President! This sucker's quick. How's it drive? President Biden took a spin recently in Ford's new all-electric F-150. American automakers say it's not long before they'll completely stop making cars that run on gas. So is this the turning point towards an all-electric future? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Renewable Energy Services in Honoka'a, a Big Island business supporting the community in the transition to renewable energy since 1992. More by searching Renewable Energy Services Big Island. It is World Oceans Month, and in our Market of Mackay Watch, we took the opportunity to find out how a recent grant from the World Surf League will be used to fortify efforts by a local community group to help manage a popular recreational spot on Oahu's North Shore. It happens to be a marine conservation district, much like Hanama Bay, but its borders are open and not easily controlled like Hanama. This past weekend, it was overrun with swimmers, snorkelers, and divers as tourism is rebounding faster than anyone expected. There were divers from as far away from Alaska, as well as local residents who came to enjoy the day. They worried about the future of the coastal resource, watching the crowds return. Here's Angelina Venturella. During the pandemic, there was nobody. It was so nice and, it, you know, it kept our beaches really clean. It kept the animals coming closer and closer in. And now it's just getting a little crazy busy, but I guess tourism is back on the rise. With any kind of vacation hotspot, you're going to get people coming to North Shore, especially and Sharks Cove, because it is one of the top diving locations and it's so beautiful. So I, it, it will get overcrowded. I, I can totally see that happening. Even now it's pretty crowded. So when it's full go again, I, I feel like it would be hard to find a place on the beach. And Nora Holloway came with her family to be at a spot that was a favorite of her late husband and their little girl. My husband was an environmental engineer, so, you know, we're all about, you know, you pack it in, you pack it out, clean up after yourselves. We'd often pick up little shards of microplastics that are all over the beach, so it is bothersome to see somebody throwing something on the ground and not pick it up, so, I don't know, it's very ingrained in us, especially our family. And so, uh, are you surprised to see the crowds? Oh. I mean, you were here, what, just six, six months ago, and it wasn't like this. I am so surprised. I'm very surprised. I thought like the crowds wouldn't come back this quickly, but everywhere I've been going to, it feels like pre-pandemic crowds again, which it's not, it's not as pleasant as it's unfortunate to say, but I guess that was the silver lining of the pandemic. 
there, you know, the beaches were a little bit um, more accessible to the locals, and it was nice. And Denise Antolini is the board president of the group Malama Pupukeo Waimea. The group acts as the watchdog of the Marine Conservation District. It stresses Pono practices and couldn't be happier that it is the first Hawaii recipient of the World Surf League inaugural Pure Grant that will help protect our ocean. We are very, very grateful to WSL for the grant because it allows us to move forward with one of our priority initiatives, which is to create a management plan for the Pupukea Marine Life Conservation District. So this area, which is so precious, it's one of the few marine reserves in the state. It's created in 1983, but it's never had a management plan. So while thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people enjoy it every year, those people do have an impact on the marine life. And we count on areas like this to replenish our marine life in Hawaii. So with a management plan, with this grant helping us along the way in partnership with the Department of Land and Natural Resources, we're hoping to identify some real solutions to protect this area in perpetuity. And we're standing by one of the solutions, and that is the replanting <laughs> of an area with natives. Native plants are a wonderful nature-based solution to overuse by humans. So before we started this native plant project, which the WSL grant will allow us to expand, people, foot traffic were creating gullies and there was red dirt running off into the Marine Life Conservation District. So these native plants you see here, beautiful Naupaka, Nanea, Pohinahina, they create a very natural barrier that retains the soil that helps direct people where to go and also educates people about the power of nature-based solutions to our overuse. So it's a, it's a been an exciting project. We, we want to do more. <laughs> so you can basically expand the plantings uh, and restrict access to the area so you can manage the crowds because right now it's a free-for-all. People are just going everywhere. Yes, you can see here today it's a very busy day, but now every day is busy. People walk wherever they want in part because nobody's told them any differently. So the plants are here 24-7, helping to gently tell people where they can go and not go. And so our hope is that this area right here where this young boy just slipped in the mud uh, right in front of us, uh, and you can see exposed roots. We hope that this will be our next phase um, to replant this and still give people really good safe access to the beach. So it's that balance. But right now, there's a lot of areas where it's just a free-for-all. So that's what management, smart management, we hope will do. And you'll get better signage out of this, too. Yes, we're looking forward to better signage. So we've already tried to put up multiple beautiful signs, interpretive signs that educate visitors about why the area is special. And we need more of that kind of signage here. And the grant will allow us to find the strategic areas to put signs that people will read because <laughs> that's important too. So that will really help emphasize to people what a special place this is. Yeah. And then we've got visitors, first time divers, beachgoers, snorkelers, and we have residents and there is a problem with poaching in this area. Recently you just had someone scoop up a whole bunch of OPE and lobsters I think. Yes, we unfortunately do have some bad apples who are poaching in the Marine Life Conservation District, which is largely a no-take area. And so somebody came in a couple weeks ago and took 382 opihi from the Marine Conservation District. And so that is a crime, an alleged crime. That person was cited and will go to court, I think, in July. That, unfortunately, was not the only incident. We've had multiple incidents, especially during COVID, when there are fewer eyes and ears down here. And we know the Department of Land and Natural Resources enforcement officers are really stretched. And there's a lot of areas to hide, <laughs> unfortunately. So our organization, Malama Pupakea Waimea, we try to provide those eyes and ears for the state, for the city, and we're down here a lot stewarding the area um, and helping to educate people and to prevent poaching. It's a, it's a big priority. We talked to uh, a resident who came here during COVID and she just said, oh my gosh, the water clarity was just incredible. And she was here today and just kind of lamenting the crowds and so many people. And, you know, we've heard this, we need to manage tourism better. And we need to manage our parks and our, our, our attractions a lot better. 
It was remarkable after the COVID shutdown how soon we saw the water get clear in the Marine Life Conservation District almost instantly. And with that increased water clarity, we saw new critters, <laughs> uh, new animals in the Marine Life Conservation District that hadn't been there before, hadn't been apparent. So what that taught us is we know what pristine looks like. And so when we work on the management solutions, that's our goal, is to return it to that quality so everybody can enjoy that kind of water quality. Panama Bay went through the same thing. It's not unique to us, but the lesson learned is we need to manage ourselves to protect the beauty and the pristine nature of this area. It can recover. That's one of the great <laughs> lessons of COVID is these areas can recover with some help. So yes, it was remarkable how quickly the marine life rebounded during COVID. And then you just shared with me too that we've got some interesting uh, water exchanges uh, going along our coastline here. Uh, talk about that. Yes, yeah, so we're hoping with the management plan we'll be identifying what kind of runoff comes from Malka because we want to do an Ahupua'a-based approach to management because we know everything comes down the hill. So we're looking at storm drains. <laughs> We're looking at ditches, we're looking at septic tanks, uh, surface water runoff from some of the commercial businesses, the rain, the showers where we're hoping to put in rain gardens, so they're in runoff from the parking lot, from the cars. Sometimes we see sheens of oil in the MLCD and sunscreen. <laughs> so there's, we do know that all of those things concentrate in the tide pools and Sharks Cove in particular, also at three tables. So we're doing a lot of scientific testing to determine baseline, but we know there's threats. and We also know that there are really good solutions to managing them that shouldn't cost an arm and a leg, but it's gonna take a big ohana to put that plan together. If we look at Hanama Bay as a model where they do close off a day, let it rest, but this has access issues. You're absolutely right. We have significant challenges here with access because from Keiki to Sharks Cove, Three Tables, all the way down to Waimea, there are probably a million ways to get to the beach. So right now there's no easy way to control it. Even with parking, you can see as you experienced today, people park everywhere. So it seems like there's no limit. So we, we do have a major challenge in front of us. The good news that the grant really helps us with is thinking about these issues, not just on a local scale, but a statewide scale. Because the grant is allowing us to work with the state's 30 by 30 program, which is the goal of effectively managing 30% of our state's nearshore marine areas by 2030, which is not that far away. So we're working closely with them to develop, for example, a community outreach program and so we have more eyes and ears. And we also then hopefully have more willingness to have maybe some temporary closures, maybe when coral is spawning, or maybe certain days of the week, or maybe certain areas where we limit access, because right now there is no limitation. So we have to do something, because today I think we've both seen there's probably easily a thousand people right around the area where we're standing. Yeah, Saturday, in June. In June. <laughs> and, well, it is a three-day weekend, but we're finding now there's no such thing as a weekend on the North Shore. And of course people want to come here. It's a fabulous area. It's great for families, divers, snorkelers. Of course they want to come here. So what we're asking is people be responsible and give back. You know, pono practices. So when you come to an area that's special, understand that it's special and do something to help. Not just come and take and, you know, home. So that's our challenge ahead and working with WSL we also have now an international network through WSL because this problem is being faced by communities around the world. So WSL takes us to the global stage in terms of marine protection and here in Hawaii there are a lot of groups who are working on the similar issues. So we're, we're not alone but as an all-volunteer organization it's very uh, challenging but we're up to the challenge. That was Denise Antolini of the group Malama Pupukea Waimea, one of five recipients of a grant from the World Surf League. The other groups are in Brazil, Jamaica, South Africa, and California.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. It's reality check time with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us with a story about rail and an email trail. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Good to be here. Hey, so now you uh, basically put in a request to see some emails, and you got a couple of batches. <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, this is a story. It's, it's based on a pair of records requests that both my colleague Nick Gruby and I uh, made I want to say a few weeks ago pertaining to this controversial contract award to former U.S. Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa, who also used to chair the Hart Rail Board. Uh, this is in regards to a contract that would have been for $216,000 over 18 months of work and could have totaled nearly $1 million if it was extended over a six-year period. And what made it kind of controversial and raised a lot of scrutiny was that the qualifications in that bid solicitation largely mirrored Hanabusa's own credentials and that she was the sole bidder. So that did raise some eyebrows at the time. Um, records requests were made, and what came back was, in fact, kind of interesting. It showed emails from top officials at heart, including the board leadership, that really just plainly stated that they did want to bring Hanabusa on board, maybe even hire her, going all the way back to December. And this was a, a contract award, you know, public bid that went out in late February. You also had the board chair having lunch with her at some point uh, early, mid-February to discuss the contract bid. So we wrote about that actually earlier this week. And then today's story is a follow-up based on the second batch of requests that came back that, that painted even more of the picture, which basically showed in these emails that we got that uh, Colleen Hanabusa was drafting bills that that basically looked to help the board and would have fallen under that scope of work in that contract. She was she was drafting these bills in the legislative session before this contract went out to bid and entirely separate. Now, Hanabusa, for her part, says, look, I was as surprised as every, anybody when I read those qualifications uh, for the, you know, for, for the bid, for the contract that that really mirrored me. And as far as the the bill, uh, the bills that she was drafting for the legislative session, she's saying I was doing that entirely separate. Both she and Hart say she was not working for Hart. She was doing that in an entirely independent capacity based on conversations that she was having with the board chair, with Toby Martin. So that might be a little, I hope everybody can kind of follow the dots there, but it's really just taking a closer look and more scrutiny at this whole situation that's been surrounding this contract. Award. And the legislation that she apparently drafted had to do with the efficiencies of the board and the quorum because of all the extra members that uh, uh, the lawmakers were able to appoint to the board for oversight. But it has hamstrung the board because they don't have enough people, right? They can't get the business done. Yeah, it's certainly been a real issue for Hart. They really have to dance around this this issue that basically requires that they have eight of their nine voting members vote in favor in order to pass anything, and they have to have the, the people on hand to do that. So it has been a real issue, and it's something that Hanabusa has, has been tracking. Uh, but yeah, it just it's just been kind of a strange situation in, in regards to how this, this work largely reflected what she was going to do under this contract. She later canceled, I should note, uh, amid the scrutiny, and, and is now going to join the board in a volunteer capacity. Right, and she takes over uh, in July for, um, I guess it was her replacement on the board at the time, uh, Glenn, right? Glenn Onaga. Right, former uh, retired uh, construction executive who is who is leaving, and so she'll take that, that seat back, kind of uh, leapfrog kind of a thing. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. Uh, I don't know, have you got any more uh, email requests out? <laughs> Stay tuned. That's okay. all I can say. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. I love the email trail. That was reporter Thanks, Marcel Henri with today's reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Christina Hom, Institutional Consultant, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC, member SIPC, specializing in social and environmental investments, 525-6977. Magazine owner Danya Novak-Katz thinks about food all the time. That's why she jumped at the opportunity to publish Edible Hawaiian Islands 14 years ago. The statewide magazine just released its 8th annual statewide Hawaii Farm Guide, an island-by-island listing of farm tours, farmers markets, and community-supported agriculture. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Novak Katz to learn how she continues to connect readers to the local food landscape during the pandemic. I live on Maui, but pre-COVID, I was traveling to all the islands every month. We would go to a different island, put on our farm boots, walk the farms, go to farmer's markets, go out to eat at nice restaurants. And I really pretty much just go out into the community as much as I can to find the interesting stories, the stories that nobody is really telling about people that are growing, cooking, fishing, um, making cocktails. You know, we just, we're curious and we want to know who's Who's doing what in the food industry? Who's moved from one kitchen to another? Who's growing what? You know, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen something and I ask the farmer, what is that? I've never seen it before. So that usually ends up in the magazine also. It's a beautiful magazine. People always tell me the number one thing when they pick it up is they love to feel it and then they love the recipes and then they love reading and educating themselves about what's going on around the state. How have you adjusted or pivoted during COVID? Oh, well, the first month or so, my daughter, who's attending college on the East Coast, came home because her college closed. And we just started cooking three meals a day, and we started checking in with our neighbors, people that live on our small rural street. We started harvesting as much fruit and vegetables that we could around our neighbor fishes. So we just started this little network. I closed my office and I moved my office to my home and I just hunkered down. And we continued to print and publish the magazine, even though we didn't really have a lot of revenue. I felt that it was important that we continue to tell the story of what was happening. And the narrative has changed, obviously. There was one... Um, moment that I can remember a couple years ago that was really important. I had a, a house guest that was staying with me and she said, you know, it's no longer going to be important about knowing your farmer. She said, of course, it's always good to know who's growing what. But she said, it's about how to access food. That was going to be the during our next emergency or tsunami. That's going to be really important is how to get food. And she was spot on. So we all learned to order online or to rely on our neighbors to share things. So what I did was I took a little time off and then I wrote a grant. I got a USDA grant to help pay for some of my printing and shipping. And I tried to support as many advertisers as I could through that nine month period. And now we're back. We're finishing our summer issue and we have more new advertisers than I've had in a couple of years. And we're roaring back. We're, it's wonderful. There's still that need to talk about who's growing and fishing and ranching and cooking our food and how to access it. That's why the farm guide is so important. Big testament to the fact that you guys are engaged. You're very connected with the community, hearing what the needs are and responding to that. Yeah, it's certainly, um, Lillian, it's a labor of love because it takes two full-time interns and myself about two-plus months. And, you know, with the pandemic, this we were doing all this work in December and January, and things were in flux. Dates were changing, times were changing on markets, new food pubs were popping up. So we really had to stay on top of it. It was really a lot of work, but the finished product is something I'm really proud of, and I'm really happy to share it with everybody, anybody that wants to read it. That's great to know, and that's how I heard about it. So it is out there available for people who are just willing to do the ask. Mm -hmm. I understand that this weekend there's something else that is going on. Tell me more about Farm Day. Well, Farm Day 
think it really started when I was sitting around my kitchen table with a couple farmers that were on my street. And they were feeling that they wanted to be supported more. So I thought, you know, let's create this guide. The guide will help people find farms, farmers markets, and farm tours on their island in their neighborhood. Also, too, with a lot of visitors that come, want to know about agriculture as well. So Farm Day started as a way to basically thank a farmer. And then we thought, you know, let's encourage people to shop at a farmer's market, take a farm tour, visit a farm. And then social media is always growing and changing. We decided instead of people, you know, sending us a message or taking a picture and then leaving it on their phone, would be to use their social media channel of choice and use our hashtag EHI Farm Day and then the year. So we have 21. So it's hashtag EHI Farm Day 21. And we encourage anybody on Saturday to go out into their community, get their friends and their family, and go thank a farmer and take a little picture, take a little video, and share that with us. Nice. How many farm days have you done? Eight. Eight. Which island is most engaged? You know, it changes year to year. It started off Oahu the first couple of years was really as strong. And what we do is we send people out into the community on each island to share what they're doing. And um, like if somebody will be at a farmer's market on Oahu and they'll see somebody on their phone, they say, hey, it's farm day. Use this hashtag. Look what everyone else is doing. So we've had people from, you know, Oahu. There's also been, you know, we've had readers that say, oh, I'm going to be on vacation in Italy. I said, well, go to a farmer's market in Italy on Saturday and share it. And then Japan and Israel and Brazil. And I think one of the top years that we had, obviously, last year was a little bit uh, different. Mm -hmm. We had over a 1,000 people using the hashtag and over 3 million impressions So people were really following along and engaged and thanking farmers and buying at a farmer's market. It was, it's just really rewarding. It's very satisfying. I used to run out to all the islands, but the last uh, few years, I just stay in my office and I just watch what's going on and try to support people from here. So that's a wonderful indication that people are aware of who their farmers are. And it's really nice to learn. I think social media has that power to really open up windows, vistas for you that otherwise you never would have known existed. Absolutely. And uh, last year, the farm day was really different because obviously we, you know, I'm on Maui, all of our markets were shut down. So I just asked people to tell me what they were cooking, where did they get their food from, what stores are they supporting. It was really a different, well, everything was different last year, but I think this year I'm going to be traveling for the first time in a year and a half. I'm going to go to Oahu, and I'm going to go to the Farm Lovers Markets in Kaka'ako, which is on Saturday from 8 a.m. until 2, visiting all the vendors and doing some live tweeting and do some social media to support the market and the farmers in that area. So for you, it sounds like you've had such a rich experience with the magazine, with what you do, with the farmers, with the markets. Is there anything left on your bucket list? There's a few things. I would love to see the magazine grow to four magazines, one magazine on each island, and then maybe annually we do a book together. I'd like to see that happen. I would like to see more people understand that local agriculture can really expand the economy in really positive ways but i think we need to change what we eat you know 150 years ago we were all eating locally sourced food i think it can happen again but we need to really change what we eat we need to be more creative and step out of our box and eat more locally sourced food that was Edible Hawaiian Islands magazine owner and publisher Danya Novak-Katz talking about farms and sourcing local with our Lillian Song.
The 8th Annual Statewide Hawaii Farm Guide is now available, and we will have links on our website later today. And if you're visiting a farm or shopping at a farmer's market this Saturday, share your experience on social media using the hashtag EHIFarmDay21. My vegetables, I'm gonna chow down My vegetables, I love you most of all My favorite vegetable Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. Coming Saturday, June 19th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with the lush sounds of Intoxica. The trio revive and reinterpret Exotica music made famous by artists like Cal Jader, Martin Denny, and Arthur Lyman. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Kimos and Leilani's on the Beach on Maui. Did you know that tomorrow is National Sushi Day? Well, we're celebrating by getting the inside info from someone who's been in the industry for over 35 years. Tom Jones is the owner of Gyotaku Japanese Restaurant here on Oahu. He spent two years in Tokyo as a sushi apprentice before opening his popular eatery in 2001. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with Jones to get his thoughts on the evolution of the dish in the U.S. and to get the location of the best sushi that he's ever had. Imagine that over time, the sushi made in the U.S. has evolved to be different than the way it was made in Japan. In your experience in the industry, how do they differ? Oh, well, I think the most obvious notable difference that everyone would know is California roll with avocado. Because avocado is not a product that you find in Japan or an ingredient, and it's really probably the most popular you know, sushi roll in the United States. So when I first ate sushi back in 1980. Two, I guess it was in Washington, D.C., you know, I got turned on to sushi back then when, when I was a chef at a country club. And when I was talking to the sushi chef, he said, this isn't really sushi <laughs> because it's got avocado and it's not real authentic sushi. But it, it's avocado is a great ingredient and it, and it really works really well. So but I think that's the most obvious one. One thing that I've noticed, and I think this is probably true for Chinese food, although I'm not quite, you know, as up on Chinese food as I am on Japanese food. But when I moved into Hawaii Kai, you know, years ago, our next door neighbor at Christmas time would bring us over sushi roll that there was homemade. Uh -huh. And there, inside there, they had, you know, ingredients that she had prepared herself, all the stuff on the inside. And one of the things that they had was canned tuna fish that was cooked with sugar and soy sauce. Oh, and my that, gosh. That replaced the pink oboto powder that they mm -hmm. use in the sushi rolls that you see. And that's typically made with white fish meat and shrimp and then sugar and a, a food coloring that makes it pink. And I used to make that in Japan at a factory when I was you know, training over there years ago. But what I came to realize was that you know, the immigrants that came from Japan you know, back in the plantation days came over here and they did the best they could with what they had to mm -hmm. simulate the cuisine that they had. So there's a very local Hawaiian style flavor that comes from those folks because back in the day they didn't have access to the real ingredients or even I don't even know if they really knew how to make it at that point but they just did the best they could with what they had and so that those flavors have become emblematic of what a comfort Japanese sushi is for local people and that's like any cuisine you know cuisine moves from geographic region to geographic region and the ingredients change and and it evolves over time and and of course the fish is different here as well I've been to plenty of graduation parties where that roll sushi has that has the canned tuna in the middle. I'm very familiar <laughs> right. with that. Right, yeah. right, right. When it comes to eating sushi and sushi etiquette, mm -hmm. I've read several things on the internet like you're supposed to eat sushi with your hands instead of using right. chopsticks, or don't dip sushi in soy sauce. You got to taste it first, and then don't mix wasabi and soy sauce together. Are any of these true? Are there any others that are important to know? Well, yes, uh, sushi is meant to be eaten by hand, 
there's nothing wrong with eating it with chopsticks, but you certainly don't need to. And some sushis are difficult to eat that way. It's much easier to eat it with your hand. As far as soy sauce goes, typically you should let the chef determine how much wasabi to put on a particular item. And wasabi is interesting in that if the fish is fatty, the fat in the in the in the you know the oils in the fish will reduce the spiciness of the wasabi. So a, a well-trained sushi chef will put a lot more wasabi on otoro than they would on something like shrimp or octopus because there's really not much fat there. And so and the chef you know it's kind of they call omakase or there's you know the chef's style of preparation. So typically it's best to defer when you're eating sushi to the chef. Now in a good sushi restaurant, if you start off eating sashimi at the table, you know, or at the counter, then they'll serve you the wasabi on the side and, and, the, and the shoyu. And typically people put too much shoyu in the bowl. You're not supposed to put too much in, just a little bit, not, not much. You can always add more later, but you don't want to drown, you know, um, what you put in there. But if you're eating sashimi, it's your decision how much wasabi to put in, you know, in there. And you can spice it up to your own level. In a very good sushi restaurant or sushi bar, the counter person or the or the server will remove your your uh, dipping bowl from your sashimi when you switch from sashimi to sushi. And from that point on, you should just use a little bit of shoyu only and let the chef make the determination on the wasabi. Um, or the chef may tell you too, don't you know use this sauce with it. He'll give you a special sauce, or he may put the sauce on himself. The chef in a good restaurant will will guide you as to whether to put soy sauce on it, you know, show you on it, or whether to put uh, salt or his, you know, maybe ponzu or or something that he's made special for that. Can you share with our listeners about your experience training as a sushi apprentice in Tokyo and maybe share some things that they may not know but should know about making sushi? First of all, the, I think the the main reason why it takes so long to become a well-trained sushi chef is that the typical Japanese restaurant has one or two, maybe three sushi makers at the counter and maybe one guy in the kitchen. And so, and they serve, you know, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 customers a day, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but that amount of volume doesn't allow for a lot of training to cut a lot of fish and to actually practice those tasks. So because of the volume of the business, it takes a really long time to be able to learn to do those things. The head sushi chef is not going to turn over his knife and cutting the big fish like the hamachis and the tunas to an apprentice. So you really have to work your way up to that experience. I was very fortunate in Japan. I went to Japan. I'm a culinary graduate. I was an executive chef before I went to Japan. And I was hired by a company that had amazing resources to train me. So I spent my first, you know, two months in Japan in a factory kitchen cutting frozen fish before they gave me the the real fish. But I learned how to use the deba and I learned the, the flavors and the taste and I learned to speak the language too, you know, during that time. And so, you know, in America, typically fillet knives are, you know, fish fillet knives are flexible. And in Japan, they use a deba, which is thicker than your average French knife. And, and so it's very sharp cutting methods are totally different. So that's one reason I think why it takes so long. As far as the rice goes, the, the word sushi is much like the word sandwich in that, you know, sandwich is pretty much anything served with a type of bread. And similarly, you know, anything that you, you know, serve with the vinegar rice is sushi. So a lot of people believe, you know, come to understand that sushi has something to do with raw fish. And that's not necessarily true any more than roast beef would, you know, make something a sandwich. So, you know, uh, you have bowls of sushi with fish or vegetables and, and things on top. That would be chirashi sushi. It's scattered over the top. Chirashi means to drop or scatter. And then there's maki sushi, which everybody knows, the sushi rolls. There's nigiri sushi, which is the, the you know, the, the little balls with the fish or the, or the product on top. And there's hako sushi, which is made in a box. So sometimes they have a, a box mold and they'll put the fish or the vegetables in the bottom. They'll put the rice on top and they'll pack it in there and open it up. It's like a rectangle, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll cut that up. So there's a variety of types of sushi. So, you know, rice and, and a nori wrapper and you've got sushi. So a lot of people, you know, who are worried about eating raw fish, you know, not a problem if you want to enjoy sushi. There's many, many ways to enjoy it without eating raw fish. What's the best sushi you've ever had? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I think it was the, well, the first time I ever ate sushi, I think it was the best sushi I ever had because oh, really? I had, well, I was a virgin, you know, sushi eater. Uh-huh. So it, it was the first time I experienced it. It was at Samurai Sushi Co. in Wisconsin Avenue 
up above Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And a friend of mine took me there. You know, his wife was Japanese and, and he was a, a childhood friend. And they took me to a sushi bar and I just fell in love with sushi immediately. I The thing that struck me the most about it was that, you know, when we cook fish, it pretty much all turns kind of white or gray color. Right. And, 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 and you really don't get to see the difference in the fish. And I was eating hamachi and, you know, and saba with these blue and gray colored shiny skins on them and you know red meat and and the hamachi had this you know beautiful you know pale kind of um, ochre color in there and i just really i was just blown away by how differently the fish tastes when it's raw than when it's cooked because when you cook it it all starts to get a more alike and when it's raw it couldn't be more different and so i think that was probably you know, my for my taste buds, the biggest awakening that I'd experienced probably in my life at that point. And then, of course, to eat sushi in Skiji area, right outside of the market in Tokyo, that was probably my next best sushi that I ever ate. And that was Gutaku Japanese restaurant owner Tom Jones discussing sushi with our Russell Subiono. Tomorrow is National Sushi Day, but after that interview, it might be worth starting the celebration early. I think I will. <laughs> There's one thing that I love to eat. It's my special little Japanese treat. It's so delicious and healthy, too. I just can't wait to eat it with you. I love sushi. Yes, I do. Tempura edamame sashimi, too. Okay, well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa is sitting in for Naloha Friday show. Give us some feedback. Got questions about, oh, I don't know, vaccines, sushi, <laughs> anything else you may have heard here on our air. Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.